0: Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Moshe Bamberger. An acclaimed speaker and writer, Rabbi Bamberger currently serves as the Mashkiach Ruchani of Beis Medrash Le Talmud at Lander College for Men in New York City. Rabbi Bamberger studied under the late Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach, a blessed memory, at Yeshivas Kol Torah in Jerusalem, at Yeshivas Or HaChayim, and at Mesifta Yeshiva Rabbi Chaim Berlin, where Rabbi Bamberger received his rabbinic ordination. Rabbi Bamberger has authored several volumes of original commentary on Tanakh, titled Shiras Halevi. Additionally, Rabbi Bamberger is also the author of the very popular great Jewish series, published by Art School Publications. These include Great Jewish Speeches, Great Jewish Letters, Great Jewish Journeys, Great Jewish Faith, Great Jewish Inspiration, Great Jewish Wisdom, and Great Jewish Photographs. And today, we will be discussing uh, Bamberger's absolutely fascinating Great Jewish Treasures, a collection of preface Judaica associated with Torah leaders. And um, it's actually a wonderful book. It was very hard to pick which topics, because each topic has its own story. And And urge all our viewers and listeners to uh, go online, as I did, and uh, purchase uh, at least great Jewish treasures, if not more, by Rabbi Vanberger. Rabbi Vanberger, thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate it very much.
1: I really appreciate you having me. It's a, a big covet to be here. I've seen the roster of uh, very illustrious uh, guests that you've had, and uh, if my name could even be in a very small font under theirs, that would be a, a tremendous plus. It's 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 our pleasure
0: and honor. Just um, so just to get started, Rabbi Bamberger, how did you come about researching and writing great Jewish
1: treasures? So Great Jewish Treasures was, I believe, the fourth book in the series. Uh, so it was sort of at that point in the series, it was already uh, not such a, uh, you know, a, a, an unusual thing to to start writing a book. It was more like continuing the process of exploration of the lives of Gedoli Israel, the great rabbinic leaders of the past thousand years from different angles. So we started... Uh, about um I don't know, 12 years ago 13 years ago with a book called great jewish letters uh we which really uh went into depth of uh the the letters the correspondences that the great leaders had with each other or the open letters that they wrote some of them were very powerful um for political reasons or for emotional reasons for uh and we got a glimpse into the hearts of the Gedolum through those letters and uh not just their scholarship, which we study in their actual the books that they've written, but through your let through the letters that that they've written, uh, we get to see like a real part of their personality, a powerful uh illustration of who they were and what made them tick and 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 their uh their heart. Uh after that we went on to great Jewish speeches uh which was the 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 speeches that they made the drushes that they that they delivered uh different occasions and that was also I, I found that very fascinating. Then we went uh, we did a little book on wisdom which was the uh the quotes and then uh we came to Great Jewish treasures. Now great Jewish treasures was really something that was very near and dear to my heart because uh my father of blessed memory um, mr bjorn Bamberger uh, Levy Bamberger was a uh, a very avid collector of Judaica and he had a large collection a large library of both books and and actual objects of Cadalum primarily of german jury um the leaders of German jury because we are uh we hail from there my great grandfather was the famed uh Levy Bamberger, the wurzburger of, and we have a lot of uh Collections of uh, of his farm, his manuscripts and his his items. So and and my father used to take me when I was a young boy to the auctions, the Judaica auctions, and Sotheby's and Kestenbaum. It was very exciting to feel the electricity in the air as huge numbers were being uh, offered for these uh, these unique and rare items. And so I guess I had it almost by osmosis in my blood, and uh, I wanted to write a book. Uh, on the treasures, on the artifacts of the G'dayim. its a, I don't think it's ever really been done uh, before in this way. Uh, we did these books, all of them, very lavishly, thank God, you know, full color. Uh, many of them are coffee table books and, um, you know, a great cost and great uh, investment. But it came out really beautifully, if I must say so myself you you said it yourself so uh this was uh the idea behind this book was not just to find uh just random objects that were owned by rabbis the The primary focus of the book was to find iconic pieces that through those pieces you'd be able to understand. A little bit more about the rabbi and what made him unique amongst rabbis not all rabbis are are the same right every rabbi has his own contribution to make uh, has his own midas has his own uh, love of certain things or what he's famous for and a lot of that if you look carefully could be expressed through the objects through the Judaica that they owned. And that's what I was trying to bring about. Like you said, there was, it's not just the pictures, the beautiful pictures of the objects, but it's the stories that these pictures tell. I don't know if you had it when you were a child, but when I had it, when I was a child, it was a big thing to have show and tell. And you brought into school something, and, or, or the rabbi brought into school something, and as soon as he brings in, it could be a schiffer, it could be a pair of tefillin, it could be a, you know, a coin from the base mixture. As soon as you bring in an object, the lesson goes from being very abstract to very real. And that's what I try to bring about through this book, that you could actually almost touch the gadol or touch the message that his life uh, was really uh, trying to convey.
0: So we'll we'll start with uh, some some examples and, and obviously get a just a bit of a feel for really what's included in in, uh, in great treasures. Uh, starting off, who was Rabbi David Oppenheim and what was included in his library and Judaica
1: collection? So Rabbi David Oppenheim, was uh, he lived from sixteen sixty four to seventeen thirty six. He was a great Talmud Chacham. He was the chief Rabbi of Prague, which was like one of the uh most important if not the most important community of, of the time in Europe and he was in addition to all the other uh his his many many attributes he also happened to be very well politically connected and also financially connected he had a very wealthy uncle uh, who he inherited a large library from and he and as as well as great wealth that Uh, He inherited from him as well as marrying uh, into wealth. So, and he used that money besides for charitable purposes, he also used it to enlarge his uncle's library. He was a bibliophile. He spent a lot of time gathering, collecting manuscripts, illustrated uh, manuscripts, uh, very rare works, and he collected them. Eventually he moved them out of Prague because he was afraid of censors coming and confiscating it. To where his uh, his 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 uncle, or rather his father-in-law, lived, and uh, and he spent a lot of time on the road, just going back and forth visiting those precious books. Those books uh, were subsequently purchased. That library collection was purchased by Oxford in 1829, and it's still intact at the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Uh, a person would be able to go and and visit those books. I have never had the good fortune of doing so, but. The entire library you could find itemized online um, and you can actually visit it and uh, and see these books personally. Uh, but suffice it to say, you know, the, these books have been a, a treasure for the Jewish people. They are uh they, are, they provide for us manuscripts that we would not have in any other way. And some of them are very beautiful manuscripts, very ornate and uh, and it's, uh, it was, uh, this is one of the legacies of Rabbi Appenheim, perhaps one of the most famous parts of his life was his library that still exists till today.
0: What was Rabbi Avraham Yeshua Heschel of Apta known for? And why does the severed Torah pointer, that is absolutely beautiful, why does that en- encapsulate that which he was known for?
1: So that's a, a wonderful example of how I wanted to use the objects to illustrate the person who owned the object. Uh, the Abder Rav, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua Heschel, um, he lived from 1750 to 1825, and he was known as the Ayah Israel. All he wanted written on his tombstone was that I was the Ayah Israel, I was the lover of the Jewish people, and that's how he lived his life. He lived his life every. Person has their own mitzvah that you know that they love and they cherish. His mitzvah, if you will, was to love every Jew, unconditional love, full love. But that was what animated him. He loved other Jews, and one time uh, he said that in every parsha, every weekly Torah portion, the name of the portion alludes somehow, some way. The mitzvah to the commandment of the hafta to love your neighbor as yourself. So that week it was the summer and it was parshas balak, which happens to be my bar mitzvah parasha, just a little bit of trivia for anyone that actually cares. Um, but uh, the is balak, so said, they said, okay, where is it alluded to in balak? You know, that's an easy one. The vase is the hafta, the lamid is loreacha, and the and the kuf is kamecha. Perfect. They said, but Rebbe, you know, that's not the way you spell it. You spell v'ahapta with a vav, not a vase, and you spell kamecha with a chaf, not a kuf. So what are you saying? So he said, a famous retort, he said, that if you're going to be so medactic with the ISIS, which means if you're going to be so uh, looking to be a perfectionist, you're never going to come to Abbas Yisrael. If you're looking to see other people in their most perfect state and you're expecting other people to be perfect, and otherwise, you're not going to befriend them, and you're not going to love them, and you're not going to care about them because they don't meet your standards. That ain't going to fly. That's not the way you could do that. So you have to. You can't be so particular with the Isis, or the letters. So when I was able to find this Torah pointer, which was in the uh, private collection, and we could talk about where I found a lot of these objects, but this particular one and, and a few others in the book um, was in the collection of a of, a, of an amazing. Collector. His name is Rabbi Avram Halpern. Uh, he lived in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. He was an avid uh, Judaica collector. I have never seen in any personal collection or any public collection anything re- remotely uh, coming to you know to the, the the toes of what this man had collected. Everyone, I guess. After the war or something, they all came to him with their, from Europe, and they had all of their possessions. And, and he was known to be the one that would give you cash for it, I guess. And and he just bought and bought and bought. And in his apart, uh, he was he died uh, maybe five years ago. Um, but in his apartment or second apartment that he kept just for his Judaica was literally thousands and thousands of priceless uh, Judaica objects. Uh, and one of the objects, we'll talk about maybe some of the others, but was the priceless Torah pointer that was owned by the Abdu And What was fascinating is the beautiful, ornate silver handle, the yad as they call it, and on the tip was the classical hand made of red coral stone, but what's the most interesting thing is that the finger of the Torah pointer of that hand is broken, it's severed, and I thought about that. Like, what does that symbolize? You know, obviously, you could say, well, it was just an accident, or maybe some, you know, anti-Semite did it along the way, or some. But, like, what does it symbolize? What's that saying? And then I remembered the story that he was the one that said, if if you're too medoctic on the ISIS, if you're too, uh, if you're too intent on on getting every little letter perfect, it's not going to work. You're not going to be able to have the unconditional love that you that I want you to have. And so the broken finger, like which is supposed to point to the letters of the Torah, it's as if it's saying, don't point too closely, like make sure to gloss over, not God forbid that you shouldn't lean perfectly, that you should, but in terms of our takeaway, don't look at the letters too perfectly. If you look at the letters too perfectly and too closely and you zoom in on them, you're going to find imperfections and that's going to blow the entire mitzvah of loving your fellow Jew. Beautiful.
0: Um, what was behind uh, Rabbi Israel Friedman's the Roshner Rav's display of royalty, and what is the story behind the Torah crown that you present in Great Jewish Treasures?
1: Again, that Torah crown was part of that priceless collection of Rabbi Alpern. Uh, there's actually i think 3 objects that i used in the book from that collection which is probably the most of any other you know one collection that i i was able to get it is like i could have made a whole book just from his i just tell you a cute story like we were sitting and talking in this in this you know beautiful the apartment wasn't beautiful but this amongst all these priceless possessions and we were sitting in chairs talking and he he said by the way you know the chair that you're sitting in, on is the oldest Kisei Shol Yahu Elijah's chair in the entire world? It was made in Italy, and I jumped out of the chair. I got so scared mm-hmm. that I was sitting in this chair of Elijah, like from the 1600s. That uh, you know, I didn't feel it was proper for me to just to like be casually uh, you know sitting and talking in it. Uh, anyway, but then at the end, towards the end of the uh, of, of his tour that he gave me. Uh, he went into like a back closet and he pulls out a wooden box and out comes this magnificent golden crown of the original The original was, as you said, he was um, a Saul Friedman. He lived from 1796 to 1850. And him and his descendants, and he has many descendants that scattered throughout the, the Torah world, and, and each of them have their own very uh, uh, prominent uh, group of Hasidus. His emblem, his mark on the Hasidic movement, was that he felt that a rebbe is royalty and should represent royalty to his Hasidim. And and being royalty, you have to have the outer trappings of royalty, and that was a very big part of the malchus, the the kingship of his of his reign of his Hasidim. So he commissioned uh, beautiful beautiful uh, Judaica to. Uh, to crown his Torah with to be the breastplate on Sefer uh his Minera, every Judaica object that he owned was not just a simple Judaic object it was one that was crafted by the very uh artisans and the the goldsmiths that crafted the czar his his crown his his ornaments was what was used that was the same those were the same people that were working for both of them and his He lived in a mansion, he lived in a palace, his private home was palatial. His base medrash, the uh, you know the, the study hall that he that he held his court in, also palatial with all the trappings of of malchus. Now you might you know you and your listeners and myself might question that and like it sounds too opulent, it sounds over the top, and you know it, maybe it's you know it, it doesn't seem that it's the right thing to do. It should be a leader should be more humble, a leader should live more with austerity. There's a beautiful story, and I bring that in a sidebar on this page, that he was once, he had golden boots with jewels, you know, studding them, and, uh, and Kiddush Levana, they went out to sanctify the new moon on Saturday night, and it was, in, in, in you know, Eastern Europe gets very cold in the winter, and everybody was standing outside in the bitter cold saying Kiddush Levana, and then when uh, they all went inside, some of the Hasidim looked at the place that the Rebbe was standing on and there was blood on the ice. And they didn't understand this. Where, where was the blood from? And they realized that the Rebbe, with his beautiful gold boots, he didn't have soles on the bottom of them. His bare feet were on the ice itself. And he was just going through the motions, in other words. He, was going, he, ha, he felt that the outer trappings of the Rebbe have to be a display of pure royalty and majesty. But at the same time, personally, in his own personal world, he was very humble, he was very simple, and he wanted to feel the pain that the people were going through. He knew that a lot of his Hasidim were very poor, indigent Jews, but, and he didn't want to be different from them. He just needed to outwardly present, represent something on a higher plane, but he himself was very, very with the people. And this Torah crown is one that is, uh, it's priceless. I don't know, you know, if if it would ever, there have been similar crowns by the same artisan that have been put up for auction on Sotheby's. I remember once my father taking me to an auction at Sotheby's and this beautiful crown was like spinning around, you know, in one of these glass cases. And it was obviously the, the centerpiece of that particular auction. I don't remember how many millions of dollars it went for, but that was just a copy of this crown that was made for maybe some, you know, wealthy Jew that wanted to have the same crown as the original but the actual crown that was owned by the original is priceless. There was, there's no price.
0: Who were the disciples of the Vilna Gom who moved to the land of Israel to Eretz Yisrael in the early 19th century? And what does the Goms map of Eretz Yisrael of Israel illustrate?
1: The Vilnagain was a great lover of the land of Israel. If you look at his famous letter that he wrote, and if you're, you know, just to give a plug for great Jewish letters, it appears there. um, He wrote a famous letter as he was traveling to the Holy Land. He was writing it to his wife and to his family, uh, describing to them how fortunate he is to be going to the Holy Land. He had intentions, of course, of going there, setting up, uh, home there and then ultimately uh, bringing his family there to settle for some unusual um, reason that history debates he turned around at one point and he went back to Vilna uh, there's many different theories why that was but he didn't end up going and settling in land he didn't even make it to the land however his students did he had many many students and they went in three different waves there was three different migrational waves of students the first one was in 1808, and that was led by Menachem Mendel of Shklov. That was one of the leading Talmidim, one of the leading disciples of the Vilna Geyin. The second wave was in 1809, just one year later, uh, which was by a, uh, one of the uh, the shamashim, one of the people that were um, serving the Vilna Geyin. His name was Reb ben Nasa And then in 1810, Reb of Shklov was the third wave of Talmidim. They were called the Prushim. The the people that segregated from the rest of the uh, the people, they wanted to maintain a very um, very high level of spirituality in the Holy Land. They wanted to live very simply, and they uh and and, and they were very successful. They established a lot of the communities, Ashkenazi communities in the Holy Land. Till today, are following the Minhagim of the Vilna Gaon because of these ways of Talmidim that spread uh, his Minhagim and his Torah throughout the entire land. Um, there was a, a map of the Vilna Gai'in that was supposedly designed by him. I don't know if he actually drew it himself, but it was certainly based on a design that he created. And it has the different tribes and where they are in the Holy land, where they're situated. Uh, it's a beautiful color map. It's located today in the Israel Museum and, and um, in the Israel National Library. I mean, And, um, and I just used that map as a, as a way of illustrating the Vilna gain's love of Eretz Yisrael. It's a map that really just speaks to uh, how enamored he was by what he calls Chemdas Kal Ha'aretz. It's the desired location of the entire world. It's like the, the the most cherished spot on earth is the Holy Land. And everything that he could do to promote it and to illustrate it was very, very important to the Vilna gain
0: Why did the uh, Chida, Rav Chaim Yosef, David Azulai travel so much? And what rabbinic ordination document of his remains extant?
1: Yeah, so the Chida was a student of the Arachayim HaKadosh, the holy Arachayim. He lived from 1724 to 1806 and he spent 5 years representing the communities in Eretz Israel which is where he hailed from originally uh he he was given the job of basically fundraising and wearing, raising awareness of the great need that the uh the settlements in the Holy Land had and uh and 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 he had the ability i don't know if it was uh if ever, everyone would appreciate being away from home for 5 years and traveling around the globe uh to places as Egypt, Italy, Germany, Holland, England, France, Sicily, Rhodes, Turkey, Syria. It sounds like a you know a very arduous journey for one to make, especially before uh the, the Jet Age and before uh you had kosher food wherever you wanted it. It was, I'm sure it was a very difficult five years of his life, but he did much more than make the best of it. He was able to uh explore many of the great libraries in these countries. And he had a photographic memory, and he was able to write down a lot of the uh, the important books that these libraries had. That if not for if not for his notations, we probably would not know even many of the books that exist. And he published them, uh, and along with um, biographies of the Gedalim and many of the Gedalim in, in a book called Shem HaGedalim, are encounters that he had personally on the journey that he made in those years. Uh, he he met many people and and his impressions of them are invaluable to Jewish historians. And um, as part when he was in Italy when he spent time in Italy, uh, he met a, a wonderful student that who was a very diligent student, a very brilliant student. His name was Rebavram Yonah. and he gave him smicha not just a normal yora yora smicha, but yadin yadin, which is a higher level of smicha, which entitles the recipient to actually judge uh court cases jewish law cases be a dayan, and it's a magnificent uh um copy of this an original smicha with a crown on top illustrated and um it's a wonderful wonderful um keepsake of uh of the chida that we have in our possession
0: what was the key to the Ben Ishai's incredible longevity and popularity? And what is included in the manuscript that you uh, illustrate uh, in, the, in the Great Treasures from the year 1901?
1: So Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Baghdad uh, was known as the Ben Ishai because he wrote uh, these incredible svarim uh, by that very name. He wrote many other svarim as well. And he was the unchallenged leader of Babylonian jury. He was the the leader. If you picture let let's say Rabavad Yosef in more current times, you know, he is like synonymous with with, with Sardic Jewry. That's how the Benishai was in his in his day and age. He was like the icon, the the face of Sardic jury. He was brilliant, he was charismatic, he was a masterful orator. And when he gave his drusha in the huge shul in Baghdad, it was packed with people. This was not a, a short drusha that he gave, like a half hour is a four to five hour sermon that he gave. And people he was able to hold people's attention spans for four to five hours, which was quite a, quite a feat. Um, and it wasn't just brilliant scholars. It was men, women, young and old. Uh, and they all got something from his his brilliant sermons. Some of them uh, got the halacha that he gave, the the legal uh, brilliance that he was sharing with his audience. Some got the agado, the the more the musr, the uh, the beautiful ideas that he weaves into his drashas. His Shabbos drasha is the one that I chose to illustrate. It was a hundred and ten page. Joshua. If you can imagine, you know, if I would see a rabbi today getting up or if people would see me as a rabbi getting up with a 110-page speech, I know what I would do. Um, and I'm sure many other people in our generation would do the same. But uh, apparently, you know, he was able to have thousands of people stay in their seats and be enamored and be enthralled and at the edge of their seats uh, by this uh, by this wonderful sermon that he gave. And this was in 1901 for Shabbat Shuvah. Um, it was the Shabbos before between Oshanim Kippur, and uh, it was about obviously repenting, the importance of repentance, and I chose to uh, to display one of the pages of these 110. Yeah,
0: beautiful. Um, yeah, there's so much to choose from, but okay, we'll, we'll stick to you know what we have right now. Uh, who was um, Rabbi Elazar Azikri, and when and how was his version? of the famous Yedid Nefesh found?
1: This is one of my favorite pieces, actually, because Yedid Nefesh is a it's a beautiful zemer on Shabbos. Um, many people sing it um, um, on Friday night before Kabbalah Shabbos, um and many people sing it by Shalashuddis. Uh, as part of Sudat Shlishit, the third meal on Shabbos. That's when I think uh, most people uh, sing Yidid It's Nefesh. It's a beautiful poem that was written by Rebbe Lazar Azikri, as, as who lived from 1533 to 1600. He was a master Kabbalist. He was a poet. He was an author of the Sefer Charedim, one of the most famous uh, sarim written in his time. And um, he lived in Sats. He lived in... Uh, he lived in, in in the city of uh, Sfas in Eretz Yisrael, where all of the major Kabbalists uh, dwelled. They say that originally he was a simple shamish, a sexton in the shul. He didn't want to be known until he was discovered by the greater Kabbalists that lived there, and they made him uh, be known. But in the Sefer Haredim, he brings this poem, uh, which is he did Nefesh, and then this, this actual manuscript in his hand of Yudid Nefesh was actually discovered, and it has many slight nuances of difference between the accepted version that is found in most ventures and most sidurim. There are slight minor variations, and some uh, some sidurim and ventures actually amended the classic version that we had for hundreds of years to match the ones that appear in this in this recently discovered manuscript but it's very clear. It's a beautiful script. And, uh, and it's, uh, it was a great discovery for the Jewish world.
0: What was the French Sanhedrin Jewish assembly? And what were the garments worn by the chief rabbi Yosef David Zinheim that you present in great Jews treasures?
1: So Rabbi Yosef David Zinheim, uh, lived from 1745 to 1812. He authored a very classic it's still being used today called the Yad David. And he was the foremost rabbi in France of his time. And he was the rabbi of Strasbourg, eventually was the chief rabbi of France, but everybody knows him for two things, I think. The first thing is the hat that he wore. Um, he wore a very unusual hat that had like almost like a double colon, Shape of it, very unusual uh, hat. I could put up to the screen um, the picture of that that if you want. Yeah, wow. (laughs) Okay. Very unusual. Looks almost like the Ten Commandments. And then um, what was the second most famous thing about him, and uh, obviously it's the first most famous thing about him, was that he was the leader the leading member of the Great Sanhedrin that was convened by Napoleon. And Napoleon, of course, was the emperor of France and he was a great conqueror. And one of the things that he did was he he wanted uh, to emancipate uh you know the Jews of of Europe and of France, he wanted to break down the ghetto walls. And this was met actually with with mixed reactions by the rabbinic leadership of the time. Some felt that this was a wonderful opportunity. We're gonna have freedom. We're gonna be able to, you know, have have much more commerce and much more uh uh livelihood and a lot of doors will be open to us. Others were scared that Maybe all these doors opening were not so good for the Jewish people because it would it would open them up to the uh, the culture surrounding them, the very decadent uh, you know, culture that was uh, that was around at the time. And I think both were true. It was a time of uh, of, of great uh, of of great freedoms and liberties of the Jews of the of that era who were suffering greatly before that, but at the same time. Uh, many Jews uh, took that road out of the ghetto and never looked back. So this was uh, it was a mixed blessing. Um, but as one of the things that Napoleon did was that he he convened uh, a great Sanhedrin, and what he wanted to do was to give legal sanction to the principles expressed by the assembly of Nota- notables, which was led by Rabbi Zinzheim uh, in eighteen oh six. When Napoleon asked him to consider a set of 12 questions submitted to it by the government about the loyalty of Jews, like the, the, the normal questions that non-Jews or perhaps anti-Semitic Jews would like to uh, hurl against the Jewish people, he wanted to get clarity. Let's get these things straight, Let, iron it out. Let's see what you have to say on these, on these 12 important matters that everybody wants to know about and they gave him answers that was i guess uh, you know whitewashed maybe for his consumption and for the people's consumption and he was satisfied with the answers that were given and then he convened the grand sanhedrin to give actual legal sanction to those principles and he was trying to copy of course the ancient custom of the sanhedrin that existed in in the temple's times when uh, when there were 71 wise men that that met and they sat in like a semicircle and conducted the affairs of the judiciary of the Jewish people, like the Supreme Court of the Jewish people. And uh, basically, they were attired in black garments with silk capes and three-cornered hats, like, as I described. And one day, as I was looking uh, through, a, or maybe I think a scholar showed it to me, that there was a uh, uh, an auction that was uh, going to take place in France in Paris and and of all things was a, a complete set of the garments of the chief rabbi. Imagine that surviving so many, you know, hundreds of years and world wars and into completely intact, a beautiful garment with his hat. Um I'll bring put that up to light as well. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was sold on auction. I don't know how much it fetched, but it was uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful piece, and I, I felt I needed to include it in the book. So I put in a chapter called Royal Garments, which I included uh, many, you know, very, very important garments that were worn by different Jewish leaders that, again, symbolized their unique role uh, in Jewish history.
0: What, what, Rabbi Bamberger, is your favorite story, Um when you discovered so many of these great treasures. Your your personal number one, if we haven't done it already.
1: No, I, I mean there are so many, honestly. I, know. I mean, this is my favorite book. you know, I you listed many books uh and I'm working on, on more, thank God, but um this is my favorite because it was so exciting to play detective and to try to uh discover all of these magnificent uh different objects that were that really uh i think if um you know if it wasn't collected in the way that it was then in a hundred years from now i think a lot of that uh, people would never know about these things because we know what happens you know either fire or or time or neglect uh or people that don't know what it is and they just throw it out you know when they're when they have to clear their grandparents house or something a lot of these things would have gone uh you know to the uh in the in the in the trash heap of of history were it not for this really concerted effort to gather the most important objects that I was able to find you know within that period of time that I was actually looking for them so um this was very exciting this work to put together all of these we could literally spend you know many many such sessions and i wouldn't mind if you would want to but i because I, I have a passion for each and every object i'll tell you a uh, one that i think your your readers might your your listeners rather might enjoy um and i i, I often say it over uh rubyakov kamenetsky was the uh one of the leaders of american jury uh he he passed away in the mid 1900s in 1990s rather and um he was known, like if you, if you would ask, you know, people that know Gedealim, what do you know about Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetzi? What's his, you know, what's his, what was the the motif of his life? He is known for being the most truthful man. He's his, the name of his books are Emmet, Lyakov, the truth to Jacob. He was, he he loved the truth and he, he abhorred anything that was lacking truth. So I wanted to find a, uh, an image of a, of an object that he owned uh, that would really bring to the table uh, something that really showed how truthful he was. So I read in one of his biographies the following story, and I made it my business to track down this particular object. What happened was before uh, Rabbi Kamenetzky moved down to New York, where he assumed the role as Rosh Hashiva of Tarvadas, uh, Rabbi Kamenetzky was a rabbi a pulpit rabbi in Toronto and when he was in Toronto he used to give a shear he used to give a class to his some members of his community on Rambam and at one point uh, around Pesach time the the shear the the people that attended the shear were so appreciative um of of all the time and effort that he put in to giving this beautiful shear that he, um, sorry, I'm looking for it as I'm speaking to you, um, that he that they presented him with a beautiful becher, a beautiful silver cup. I'll show it to you. What it looked like. This was a silver cup. It, it's it has his name on it. It says that it's a gift um, on Cholamayim Pesach in the year uh, to our Rabbi Rabbi Yud Kamenetsky, or Yaakov Kamenetsky. That's the cup that was presented to him by the She'er. A few weeks after Pesach, Rabbi Kamenetsky was spotted by one of the members of the shear going in with this Kiddush cup into a pawn shop, which is a shop that normally you go into to. You know, to cash in for whatever you were given. If I want to raise a few dollars, I don't need some some silver or gold or whatever that I have hanging around the house, and I could. So I would go into a pawn shop and I would trade it in. And this Balabayas that that was one of the people that went to so much effort to engrave the cup, to buy the cup, to present the cup. You know, he was aghast. Like, how could our rabbi do this? Like, what's up with a rabbi? Does he need a raise in salary so badly that he has to actually start hocking his, his the cup that we worked so hard on and gave it and with love and appreciation? what's up with the rabbi? So he came back to the class, of course, this this person and told all of them, and they were really confused and a little bit upset and disappointed and angry and maybe everything. And they asked. They said, or "One of us is going to approach respectfully the rabbi and ask what's going on." So they went over. what This person approached the rabbi and said, "Rabbi, it's uncomfortable for me what I'm about to ask you. Uh, you know, you were spotted with the with the becher that we bought you, with a, the the silver goblet that we bought you, going into a pawn shop and." do you not like the cup? Do you want to, you, you traded it in for money? Like you need uh, more, more, more money. Like what's, what's the story rather. So he said, no, 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 God forbid. I love the cup. I use it every Shabbos. It's beautiful. I I am so grateful. Okay. So then why did you go into the store with it? He says, well, I wanted to find out how much it's worth. I didn't want to sell it. I just wanted to get, they know how to assess the value of a cup. So I wanted to. It's a rabbi, you know. It, it, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Like we gave you a cup, doesn't matter whether it costs a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars, well, it's a gift. What? It's why are you? Why do you care so much about how much it's worth? So, Rabbi Kamenetsky looks at the man. And he says, "It's almost tax time. It's almost the day that I have to file my taxes. You gave me the cup as a gift for services rendered as a rabbi." I have to report the cup that you gave me as income to the Canadian version of the IRS. And I have to know exactly how much to declare on my tax forms in order to be totally, completely honest when reporting. Now, I told this story to a, a leading Rosh Yeshiva, and he almost fell off his chair. He said, like, I argue with that. I can't believe that. That's, not, that's above and beyond. That's not normal. It's not, you know, I don't know if you have to do that. But to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, this was normal. We think, oh, it's a gift and it's fine. You know, we just, everything in our minds is 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 clean and fine and good. And we, you know, to him, he was such a man of truth that he absolutely looked at that as income and he needed to report it to the IRS. This is not something that, you know, it, it, can we meet that standard? Maybe some of us can, maybe some of us can. But just to get a, a real appreciation for the Torah leaders that we have. And how they're not just brilliant Torah scholars, but rather they have hearts of gold. They have character traits that are sterling, literally sterling. And, and I love that story because this cup is not just, a, it's not just a cup. It's not just an object. It actually is a piece that brings to life the very essence of Rabbi Kamenetsky, its owner.
0: This has been fascinating. And as as you said, Rabbi Bamberger, we could do multiple series of this and maybe we'll do so. Um, Great Jewish Treasures by Rabbi Moshe Bamberger and urge again all our viewers and listeners to um, to purchase uh, and, and the other books, which now I'll, I'll have to perhaps get as well uh, in order to fill out m- my you know, limited Judaica library. Um, Rabbi Vanberger, thank you so much for your time today. It's been deeply appreciated. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and your interest, and uh, you should continue to go on to ever greater success.
0: Thank you.